Welcome to Project Update, a weekly podcast about the projects we're working on and a really, really, really long vacation. I'm Joe Simpson. And I'm Dave Ramsey. How's it going, Dave? Doing really good, Joe. How you doing? Oh, pretty good. So we don't really have any follow-up this week, but I wanted to take care of some housekeeping at the top of the show. Um, first of which, if you have any follow-up for us for future episodes, go to project-update.com contact, and you can send us a message. You can also find either one of us on Twitter. I'll leave links to our Twitter accounts in the show notes. And then we wanted to ask everybody to stop what you're doing right now and go leave us a review in whatever podcast player you're using. So if you're using the Apple Podcast app, you can do it right in the app. If you're using Overcast, you can recommend us with a little star icon and uh, maybe share this current episode on your social media or tell your friends and just kind of help us spread the show a little bit. Anything you want to add to that, Dave? Uh, Just to reiterate, please. Please. Thank you. Anyway, so what's going on with you this week, Dave? Uh, still poking at this, at this parser. Yeah. Um, I keep, so you remember how last week I was like, Hey, so I'm going to go through and, and like really do this thing so that it's super smart and really knows the logic for all the functions and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And now after I started digging into this one, yeah, maybe that's a bit much <laughs> for this stage. <laughs> um, for one thing, by the time that I get to really needing that, it is entirely possible that FileMaker will have heard our input and done the detailed parsing that we all want. Mm. So that would obviate large chunks of that work. I'd still need it if I'm going to allow calculation editing inside FM perception. But there's also, a, it, there's no timeline for the kinds of changes that they're making related to this new XML. Yeah. So I may not need this for two years. Mm. I mean, it may be next May, but it may be the following May. And it could possibly be the May after that before we get a full DDR out of the new XML. Is there an updated version of their roadmap document anywhere? Um... I, I I don't know. Maybe worth looking into that because they usually they've got like kind of a table system where they mark things in what's it called like FileMaker Next. There's another one after mm-hmm. that, and then there's another one of like things we're experimenting with. So like here's here's what's coming in the next version. Here's what's probably going to be in the version after that, and here are things that we have no idea. They could show up anywhere. They could show up this year. They could show up never. But uh, they usually have each section of that roadmap broken out into that. Yeah, I, I just know that the the initial plan for the XML, even with like this is what we're doing on the next version, mm-hmm. got pared down at the tail end. Like there are features that have slid by two versions already. Yeah. Um, and so, it, regardless, the other thing is that. The way I was writing this stuff is extremely language dependent, particularly when you get into foreign languages. And I want a smarter way of tackling that. And it's much simpler if you go, yeah, I don't really care what the characters are. You know, a a word 
is a space delimited sequence of characters that doesn't contain an operator unless it's inside the escaping notation. Like, I don't care whether it's Chinese or Japanese or English. This is the general state of things. And that code should be dramatically simpler to write, easier to maintain, and um, probably faster to parse. It's just a, it's a simpler set of rules, and it's about six or seven hundred lines, actually closer to nine hundred lines shorter in the grammar. Hmm. Um, and that's actually it's nine hundred lines shorter in the grammar just in English. Wow. Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure I can automate creation of those lines. And I was starting to work down that direction, then looking at it and the work that I was doing. And then the fact that most of that wasn't going to help me do Japanese, hmm. Spanish, French, German. And so to a certain degree, what I, what I think I want to do is just say, this is a function. At this stage, I don't care who defines the function. It's a function. And then we can move on from there. Um, yeah. So then I was also digging into uh, the white space and the comments. Mm -hmm. um, comments were weird because they could appear basically anywhere in the sequence and didn't affect the structure of the, or the, the logic of the calculation. White space is a different weird one because white space is important to me for purposes of diffing, but it's not generally important for the purposes of parsing, except where it appears in like a field name or a function name. Mm-hmm. And so I've got to kind of semi-ignore it. And Antler has a, a, a construct for dealing with this. They call it a channel. And so you're actually parsing the data into multiple feeds. And kind of going, here's the logical parts. Here's the non-logical parts. Hmm. And then you can say, okay, does this word have white space preceding it? Because if I've got two words in a row the white space between them is important. Yeah. If I've got one word and then an open parenthesis, the white space in between is not important for purposes of figuring out where the edges of the identifiers are. Um, Can I so, make a, a quick digression? Absolutely. So when I spend, I've been spending a lot of time in not FileMaker this year, and it's not very often lately that I've been back in FileMaker. But when I am, I'm really annoyed about using parentheses instead of curly brackets. Like I'm just, I've built up so much muscle memory when I'm writing anything to use curly brackets and all of a sudden FileMaker just uses parentheses for everything and it's just weird. I never thought it was weird when that's the only thing <laughs> that I knew and now I think it's really weird. Anyway. Well, they were already using the curly brackets for something else. Yeah. Yeah, or Just an oddity, or to a certain degree, where they use the square brackets, mm -hmm. braces brackets. Anyway, um, 
Yeah. I mean, the, the brain shifting and muscle memory shifting is always fun. Mm-hmm. I, I love when I start typing Swift function names into the FileMaker calculation engine. Well, this morning I tried to build and run an email. <laughs> it didn't go anywhere. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, anyway. There, was, there have even been various times where I considered um, making a Swift library that understood all the FileMaker functions. Mm. So I could just type the FileMaker functions into Swift and they would work. <laughs> and also periodically times where I was going to reverse that and make a collection of custom functions in FileMaker that could understand Swift. Nice. Um, it, it's, that's like meta work. Yeah. It's work about doing work. And... I've always resisted the temptation, but that doesn't do anything about the temptation. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, and then as I'm doing this, I'm then starting to play with kind of putting it all back together. Like once I've parsed all this out, we talked last week about turning it into the XML and trying to wrap my brain around putting all these pieces back together and in particular retaining the white space and comments. Like I really need to be able to parse this thing into a thousand chunks and a put it all back together. So it looks exactly the same, not just using like get the source as string, but doing the construction process, but getting the same result. Mm -hmm. And then I can work on altering what that output is. So that it'll kind of always match on both sides of the comparison. Um, And this, the combination of these things, these areas of uncertainty is making my progress very slow. Yeah. You you only need to put it all back together and again in the same way if you are going to allow editing of it. If you're not going to allow editing of the calculations, then you can just display the original calculation from the XML. So you have your user displayed version versus your the part that's actually diffed. Yeah, I'm more meaning that if I've got two versions of a calculation mm-hmm. and I slice it up into a bunch of chunks and then put it back together, if either of those has any variation whatsoever, say they had the curly brace notation but changed, but fixed the field name so now the curly brace notation was no longer required. Mm-hmm. They didn't have to escape the field name to make it work in the calculation. I need to make sure that once I've broken it into a thousand chunks and then put it back together, that those things will still match up. Yeah. Like if I introduce even a single extraneous space, I can fix all the field names and find out that there's no substantive changes between these calculations. And I'll still show a difference because it's a space in a weird place. Like I can't drop or add a single space anywhere in this stuff or I'll end up with a difference that isn't real. Hmm. 
so yeah so i'm i'm beyond where i thought my timeline was going to be i'm crossing that threshold well i I thought it was going to cost me about a month to do the parser uh basically a month post devcon and we are basically now a month post devcon and the parser is not done um that's okay. My my project started as a way to kill a week of extra time before WWDC. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> just just a little bit of time. Let's just mm-hmm. go ahead and knock this out. Yeah. yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean, it'll it'll take as long as it takes, and there's really no way around this. There's no shortcut here, and I feel like I'm on the right path. But the various layers of uncertainty are making it difficult to make progress. Yeah. Because every time I go, well, maybe I could do this. My brain starts kind of running through its own unit testing system and going, oh, yeah, that's that's going to break in Chinese or it's going to break like... I, you know, Even when I, I do this this thing of just saying kind of all functions are built the same... There are functions that are not built the same. Mm-hmm. There are functions that take no parameters. And, you know, the self function. Um, and I'm going to need to handle that and catch that. And go, this is a function, not a field name. You don't need to go looking through tables to find out which it is. Um... So, yeah, I mean, it, it at some level, I need to start making more progress. Mm-hmm. But progress is very, very slow. I was trying to break it down in my head last night and going, you know, there's there's multiple kinds of code answers. There's the first answer. <laughs> and then there's the right answer. The first answer is usually accompanied by the words of, I'll just... Yeah, yeah, let's, let's, well, I, I, this should work. Mm-hmm. Um, every once in a while, the first answer is the right answer. But honestly, not very often. I have a tendency to come up with the first answer that's super easy, then think about it and realize that it's way more complex, throw myself down the rabbit hole on the complex mm-hmm. side, and then give up in frustration and realize that the simple answer would work all along. <laughs> I'll, I'm not going to say I haven't done that. I'm just saying it's usually for me the second or third answer that's really the right answer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then there's there's other ones. There's then the indeterminate answer. It's like, is this the right answer? Like the answer I have right now, it's the third or fourth version. But is this where it is? Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, this phase of the project, of any project, is always, it's not my least favorite, but it's it's one of the more difficult parts of the project where you've got, you're basically loading more and more stuff into your head and trying to think of like, is this idea going to conflict with this thing that I need to deliver on? Whether it's, what no matter what kind of project it is. And it's always it's always like the most painful part of the project, even though I do enjoy it. And it's kind of what I'm good at. It can be overwhelming. 
And those are the types of days where I'm exhausted by the end of the day and I'm not doing much else the rest of the time. But once I get past that, I usually will get to the point where I just have to get everything down on paper or a notes document or something like, like that. And then just spend a couple of hours kind of moving things around, writing mm-hmm. out the details, figuring out where stuff conflicts and where stuff works. Once I get past that, it seems like every project becomes just fun implementation, mm-hmm. you know, grinding through the details at that point. And it's definitely not the way that most people work. Like I've worked with other software developers in FileMaker and most people just kind of start the project and get started and make a bunch of progress and make about the same amount of progress every week until the project is over. I'm like, that's <laughs> not me. I do almost all of the thinking up front and then the rest of the time is like, well, I'm going to do FileMaker for six hours a day and play video games and, and hang out and have fun. But uh, yeah, that first huh. couple of weeks is, is difficult. I'm uh, This is fresh in my mind because I just spent the weekend getting all the hard stuff out of the way and now I'm actually in the point with my project where I'm actually having fun and making progress but we'll talk about that in a couple minutes what's slightly frustrating is the fact that i had gotten through the difficult part Mm -hmm. you know i found another one yeah i found another one (laughs) so like i was in the fun part and the fun part was really fun i was having fun it was great there was progress it was cool it looked neat it did neat stuff Mm mm-hmm and now I'm back to this. Oh, okay, so how how does how do these three pieces fit together, and and how exactly do I make that go? Yeah. Eh. Oh, okay. So yeah. maybe my project analogy doesn't quite make sense because, in the scope of what you're doing, is so much bigger than the type of projects that I usually work on. So I usually have that one difficult phase for a project, but a project is usually something quantified right down to the dollar and how many weeks I'm spending on it. Whereas this, this product is much bigger than anything that I've developed in and of itself. And there's still a lot of unknowns with like, is it with when FileMaker is going to have any of this available and what features should actually be there. So you're kind of still, you're in the implementation phase, but you're also still in the discovery phase for this product <laughs> of making new features. Oh. Like what, what is this application going to be? The same thing was true of FM Perception. Like the early versions of FM Perception were really primitive compared to what you ended up shipping. And they had a lot of the core elements there, but you added a ton of what people would consider like core features of FM Perception a year after. Yeah. So, yeah. It's difficult stuff. Yeah. I'm going to stick with these super easy Swift UI mobile apps that don't cause me any anxiety <laughs> or anything. How's that going, Joe? That's good. Um, I finally finished my vacation. So I took a prolonged, prolonged vacation. And I basically got to the point where I was feeling guilty for having done so little productive work. And I waited until I got to that point and then made, my, made myself wait two more days. I'm like, I'm not really done yet until I get that out of my head too. So basically, Friday and Saturday, I just kind of sat and stared. Like, I have nothing else I want to do. I've played all the video games. I've listened to the podcast. I've read the books. Like, sick of all this and just kind of laid around. 
Yeah, it's pretty nice. a friend of mine used to say that you're not really done with vacation. Like you haven't really done vacation until you get to the point where you just really want to get back to work. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, please let me work. And then you have to wait some more days. So yeah. you're following the pattern perfectly. Yeah, it worked out pretty well. So I finally got back to work yesterday. And um, basically, I I dived right back into where I left off, which was I had some issues with the way I was using core data with the Swift UI stuff, particularly trying to get by with the minimal offerings that are built into Swift UI, like passing the managed object context to a view and using the fetched results property wrappers and things like that. There's just too many limitations for those. Those are great for really simple views and that's about it. So I had spent some time a couple of weeks ago trying alternate approaches and tried to write my own little, basically my own version of the core data fetch result controller and didn't really get very far, mainly because it was, it was one of those problems where I could immediately see how many tiny little things I had to account for and I just mm-hmm. didn't want to wrap my head around it. And basically, like this relationship of the answer is like, it's like straight out of space balls. Um, one of the questions that I had asked back in June had a comment. So on Stack Overflow, I had asked some questions about core data. One of those comments had an additional comment about somebody saying, sorry, you didn't like my answer. I've deleted it. But if you're interested, check out my answer to this other post. So I followed that, found that comment, which linked to a GitHub repository of a sample project of a core data stack that worked out. So it's like five or six links removed. But <laughs> this, uh, I need to find this developer and thank him. Um, I'll see if I can put a link to the, the GitHub repo in the show notes. <laughs> Get him to put his answer back so you can actually yeah. give him the credit for it. Yeah. So he has been all summer just kind of iterating on this, this rather simple app. He, he kind of divvied the UI up into four different tabs of like different ways of doing the UI, um, but built a kind of a core data object and a core data data source object that implements a lot of the functionality that go with the fetch result controller. And those functionalities are like creation and delete, uh, reordering rows, sorting, things like that. Um, and conveniently, his sample application had exactly two entities, a list entity and an, entity, and an attribute entity. I'm like, that's exactly what I'm working with. Like the, the actual <laughs> fields are different, but the overall structure was pretty much exactly what I'm doing. So starting yesterday, I gave myself most of the week to work on it, but I was done with it in about four hours. <laughs> like, well, this is great. So I've got all of that implemented. Um, there's still a couple things I need to tweak about it, but it's to, it's to the point now where I can, it wasn't just copy and paste the code entirely from the sample project and like not know how it's worked. I just copied in the things that I needed and got rid of the stuff that I didn't. And it immediately started making changes where like a lot of his code was was very abstracted to work with lots of different types of core data objects. And I don't need that level of abstraction here. So I just kind of dumbed it down. Um, there are some funny issues to work out. Like 
when you reorder a row in a table, you say you have rows one, two, and three. If you pull row down, row one down below row two, those will swap and the animation will match. But if you do the opposite, pull row two up a row one, they'll briefly swap back and then animate the other way. So it's almost like they're spinning. And it's just because, like I, I immediately saw it in the code of they're all he's always using the same order to switch the indexes for the rows, but Swift UI has a real-time tie to that. So on a table view in the UI kit, you wouldn't notice this because you would refresh the table after changing the indexes. But Swift UI has a real-time tie to both of those attributes. So it's swapping them both and then swapping them both again. <laughs> it's, it's actually really silly looking. So lots of little things like that. Um, I spent most of yesterday and today just kind of updating my documentation and then working on lots of little small issues and just fine points of like, you know, making sure there's plenty of contrast with icons and colors and tons of little features. I had a weird issue where I mentioned a couple weeks ago that I was using those hidden text elements to attach the sheet modifiers to because I've got multiple sheet modifiers that are handling the modal presentations. Uh-huh. And they, if you attach them to the same object, they were conflicting with each other and kind of causing some bugs. So somebody on Stack Overflow suggested make an empty text object and then mark it with the hidden modifier so it doesn't render. And that works, except it does still take up space when SwiftUI is parsing out the layout. So I had accumulated tiny little bits of white space at the bottom of the layout, so kind of in the safe area on an uh-huh. iPhone 10 or 10s. And I really noticed it when I started navigating to a couple of levels deep where that space, because I was calling those outside of the navigation view, they were persisting throughout the application. So each view had another one of those. And all of a sudden the the bottom bar was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, so I had just had those, basically I had a V stack or vertical stack at the top of the hierarchy for the view. Then my navigation link or my navigation view with all of the view contents in it there. And at the end of that, after that, but still in the VStack, those empty text elements. So I am very smart. And I decided, well, like I, I figured out that the, how these are rendering because Xcode has some rendering stuff. So you can take a look at um, in the debug stuff. But so I saw these little tiny blocks. I'm like, there's no content to them, but they still have a a vertical height to them. So they're taking up a little bit of space, even though there's no text in the strings. So I figured if they still need to appear on screen, even though they're hidden, or they still need to have space to appear on screen, assuming that you would Mm -hmm. want to show them, but I never need to show them. I just change that V stack into a Z stack. So now they're just sitting behind everything else and problem (laughs) solved. Kind of a neat little workaround. Okay. You know, spent some time kind of parsing out or uh, splitting complex views into simpler ones. I've still got some work to do on that. Um, And this is an interesting thing. I kind of want to watch the community and see who, what kind of standards arrive around this. But I'm wondering how to structure the project with. Swift UI, like for example, I've got a list view and I've got a custom cell view 
and the cell view is a separate struct outside of the scope of the list and I'm using instances of it in the list. Mm -hmm. Should that go into a separate file or just tacked on the bottom of the file? And to me, it depends on how I'm using that. If it's a cell I'm going to use on multiple different instances throughout the app, then I would make give it its own file and maintain it separately. But in my case, I'm only using that on that one layout and it's just way easier to stay in the same file and make updates to it rather than constantly swapping between files or opening multiple tabs. Hmm. It, it sounds like a silly thing to think about, but you can end up with hundreds of Swift UI views in an application. I'm not sure if I want hundreds of Swift files. Hmm. Yeah. And there's also the like the tendency to abstract stuff. Like I made a um, a single edit view that can handle adding new records or editing changes to existing records. And that's how I handled the first set of data entry screens. But on the second one, there was enough differences between them that I made an add, versus, add view and an edit view. And I think I'm going to go back to the other one and do the same thing because it's a lot easier to debug what's going on with it. And it's a lot easier for Swift to do the type inference on the Swift UI stuff when it has just a couple of lines to, to try to scrub through. And a lot of this just stems from the fact that Swift UI like error, errors and issues, like little red dots of doom mm -hmm. in Xcode, they're just not reliable right now. So you could have a syntax error or be trying to do something weird on line 43, but you'll see an error on line 17 on like some unrelated thing. And the error will always just be something really ambiguous. And so it's just, it's been helpful to work with the smallest units possible. Yeah. I, I have a tendency to do that with kind of backend code mm -hmm. where like the, an example will show you dot notation with five functions strung together. <laughs> And yeah. that's just a nightmare to debug. Yeah, absolutely. Like you don't you don't get the interim pieces of that in any way that I can detect when you're going through debugging. I'd most of the time rather have five separate lines with five separate assigned local variables that are going to get wiped at the end of the function anyway mm -hmm. and just be able to really look at it in that way. And honestly, it's not that hard to understand. Yeah. Yeah, so at this point, I guess this week, I'm mostly focusing on UI stuff and finishing up a bunch of views, and then I can start working on some of the more interesting report views. But the next big technical challenge, um, I'm not sure if I'm going to tackle it this week or wait till next week, but it's getting the core data stuff syncing with Cloud with CloudKit. We call it CloudKit. <laughs> CloudKit. And I haven't actually got this working yet. Um, from what I understand, it's supposed to be pretty easy, but I've also seen some people on Twitter saying, well, there's there's this issue with this thing, and this other thing is not supported, and this isn't supported. And so, yeah, I'm probably going to run into some issues with that when I get to it. And the reason I'm not even trying to work on it yet is because I want to make sure that my schema is exactly what I want for version one before I start messing with the CloudKit stuff, because... Otherwise, I end up with having to deal with core data migrations and then CloudKit schema changes, like just for simple things when I'm still very much in the none of this data matters phase. And I don't really want to go through that extra work. You know, I initially hoped to have 
a beta out in August, and that didn't happen when I made the switch to Swift UI. So I think I'm about caught up to where I was before I switched to Swift UI. Um, some features I've got way better, like the icon and color picker are way better than their previous version. Um, today I made a, a simple form view for adding event records and the form entity or whatever it's called, the form view, how you just basically replace a VStack or a list with the word form. And all of a sudden everything just changes how it renders and pickers become different styles. And yeah, it's really neat stuff. You can make some really nice data entry stuff for very, very little work. And I need to spend some time, you know, just adding polish, making things look really good, adding some haptics, um, improving the animations. So a lot of stuff to do for the app aside from the data things itself. But I, I think I'm at the point now where I can kind of take time to work on the really difficult stuff. And then if I'm banging my head against the desk, I can, you know, put a pin on it and work on something more fun like animations. Yeah, it's always one of the things that fascinates me about app development is they are effectively fractal in nature. <laughs> the further you zoom in, the more detail becomes apparent. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's just, even the simplest app can consume infinite time. Yeah, definitely. So I mentioned I wanted to do a beta in August. At this point, mm -hmm. um, looking at my roadmap, in my to-do list, I'm hoping to have this app out in October, like not just the beta, but a real thing. And the reason I'm doing that is because I was, one of the things I did on the vacation was look at how much money I made this year and it wasn't very much. Mm -hmm. And I need to spend the rest of the year making money. And hopefully this app will make me some money, but I can't really count on that. So I need to kind of put this project, wrap this project up into a point where I'm either making small changes to it in my downtime or it's making money to justify continued full-time work on it. Right. So there's something else that's kind of related to this app and to what's happening this week, which is AR, maybe. So we're recording this on Monday the 9th. Apple is having their annual iPhone event tomorrow. And we're not gonna have a whole session about our predictions for the event or anything like that. But over the last week or so, I've I've seen a lot of kind of increase in the rumors about an AR headset, maybe being announced tomorrow, or maybe Apple just kind of hinting at it tomorrow, or maybe like, you know, pre-announcing it like they did with the Apple Watch a couple years ago. And we, before we started Project Update, we spent about a month recording some test episodes that will never see the light of day because Dave said some horrible things about some very nice people. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but during that time, I was working on an augmented reality app in iOS. Basically, uh, we can talk about the idea because I think it's a cool idea. You know, I might not ever make it. But I wanted to take the take data from reminders using Apple's event kit and split each of my cards into 3D space. So each list can attack it onto like an index card shaped object and have it float in space around you. And I got some really cool stuff working, um, you know, basically using 
UIKit views rendered onto 3D objects loading in space. And I had some really cool math to parse them out um, kind of from the center on three different rows. And there's some really neat stuff there. But uh, I ran into some technical issues with, because I'm using UIKit on the 3D objects, and I'm also, I need a couple of UIKit elements floating on the UI on the phone. I ran into just an issue that I couldn't work around of the, the UIKit views in the 3D space would always override the ones on the 2D space on the phone. So I basically ended up with a point where I'd have to, in order for the user to close a scene or open a menu or change the settings, they'd have to point their phone at the ground or straight up in the air or I have to make sure they're not looking anywhere <laughs> at those things. And I could, I could still do that. I could have part of the tutorial of like to show the menu, point your phone at the ground. You know, I could do that, but I just, <laughs> it seems kind of weird. No, it, it's a, it's a beautiful UI construct. It just happens to solve this humongous bug. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I just thought of that this week, actually. Didn't think of that workaround at the time. But I put this project on hold to uh, wait on WWDC to see if Apple would fix any of this with a new version of ARKit, and they didn't. And then I got distracted by working on this project, which was something that's been on my to-do list for years, I think four years before I even got into this type of stuff. And it kind of became the thing I was more interested in shipping, um, mainly because I think there's more of an economic incentive for this project than the AR thing. But, so I wanted to talk a little bit about AR in general and what I wanted to do with it, what I hope Apple does with it. Um, and Dave, I'll wake you up when I'm done. No, I'm all in. Yeah? Yeah. So what I want from AR isn't just gaming. I think games and AR is a fun thing to try out, but that's not the only thing. It's just like with VR. VR is really good for gaming right now. It can be good for lots of other stuff too, but there hasn't been much of an ecosystem of productivity apps or doing something not related to games. There are some neat stuff like Google Earth is a great way to mm -hmm. see the world. There's some great artistic tools. Um, there's some music creation stuff, but for the most part, there is no email, context, calendar, reminders, <laughs> like boring stuff for Joe. Um, unless you want to use Windows Mixed Reality, which, see, one of the coolest things about Windows Mixed Reality was being able to use lots of 2D apps in VR. Um, it had some issues with getting it to actually remember things and... Yeah, there was a lot of edge involved. Mm -hmm. But uh, I want that type of interface in AR. And like, obviously, I want to deal with 3D objects in AR. But a lot of what I want to do as a developer involves using 2D objects just in, in space. So not necessarily mm -hmm. augmenting the world, but being able to use 3D space to interact with stuff. Um, AR Xcode. Mm. Mm, no, I don't think so. No, not oh. right off. Right um, off. I, I I think they should just go straight to one of the toughest tasks. Yeah, it's developer focused. Yeah, 
Yeah. I, I don't think they will, but I, I think that's totally where they should go. Yeah, I think if they were going to do a pro app in AR for the first, like the first big challenge, I think video editing would probably be the most compelling thing because you could have your video windows and like a bucket of resources to pull into, but you could physically move the track forward and backward in time. And that would be really cool. Like a little gesture-based scrubber dial. Mm -hmm. A lot of what I want to do with AR involves just interacting with data, also visualizing data. So the app that I'm working on now, which I'll hopefully be able to start talking about it in detail soon, it has a big data visualization side. And a lot of that I can do right on the iPhone or the iPad, maybe even like this data is renderable in lots of different ways. And I want to do stuff with it on the watch and on the Apple TV and on the Mac and in your face if there's an AR headset. I don't know what I think Apple is going to do is some kind of AR headset that attaches to a phone in either physically or wirelessly, but probably in a similar way that the watch did where most of the work is happening on the phone and sending data to the headset. Um, I can't really see more than that at this point. I also don't see how they're going to do it wirelessly without all kinds of interference and bad behavior. Mm -hmm. But people keep saying, oh yeah, it'll be wireless. I'm like, okay. Um, there is a bigger AR industry out there right now. There's uh, Microsoft's HoloLens, which has been out for several years. They just iterated on to version two this year, which made some pretty big improvements. There's also Magic Leap, which seems to have kind of sabotaged themselves with overhyping their product and under-delivering with their first version. And it seems like last week I heard that they were going to be pivoting towards uh, healthcare, maybe pivoting away from consumer electronics, which would probably be wise since their headset costs $2,500. <laughs> um, and you can't wear glasses while you use it. Mm. Yeah. So, and there's also... You know, what we think of as AR now, which is using smartphone stuff, which is fun for a little bit, it, but it's not the best way to use your phone. You end up getting tired holding your arms out in the middle of nowhere. It's better mm -hmm. on the iPad. Um, it's definitely more fun to look at some like simulations and things like that on the iPad. There's lots of educational stuff in the App Store to check out. But both of these things are neat toys. They're not like life-changing things. And... In order for AR to be more life-changing, it needs to do the boring things as well, not just the exciting things, which is one of the reasons I think VR hasn't really caught on yet because VR is really good for games, but you can't do that much productive work in it yet unless you're convinced that Windows is the only thing you ever want to work in. Um, I think AR would, for me, it would follow a similar pattern. Like if, if all it can do is play games with maybe some interesting new game mechanics, but I can't use other types of apps, then it will, I don't know. I'll probably still buy it, but it probably <laughs> won't change much. Yeah, that. Uh, as you were talking, I was trying to figure out whether this is one of those products where I buy the first generation Apple one knowing that it's going to be very quickly apparent that it's underpowered. Mm-hmm. Like almost all of Apple's first gen things oh, yeah. are dramatically supplanted by the second gen. 
Or is it going to be something that I like, no, I'm going to go ahead and jump into this now. Get a little bit of a head start mm-hmm. and just know that as soon as the second gen comes out, I'm never going to touch the first gen again. Yeah. Do you think that Apple can get around uh, camera paranoia? I mean, is, is the Apple brand enough to do that? I think some of that paranoia has died down already. Um, I think you're alluding to the Google Glass stuff from a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I think that was probably just, well, how do I put this? I think our ex- expectations of privacy have already been eroded to the point where that would matter now. So I don't think it's that people would accept it. It's that people have been spending the last five years installing eavesdropping devices in their house called mm-hmm. Amazon Echo and Siri and Google Assistant. So I think just the, the culture has changed enough by this point where people are used to filming everything all the time and being filmed all the time. So, yeah, I don't think I don't think Apple necessarily brings anything different to the table than if Google had done it. I think if Facebook launched an AR headset, you'd see a lot of people being scared of that. Like they, mm-hmm. they launched their portal devices last year which is not an AR thing, but it's a basically a dedicated FaceTime unit type thing, video conferencing yeah. that kind of follows you around the room. It's really neat, but everyone who saw it was like, why would I put this device in my home? Yeah. I, the, the idea I was tossing around in my head, and I'll just share this because I have no idea or information whether it's anything that even could be made to work long term. Mm-hmm. But it was an interesting idea, and I haven't been able to shake it. And it's, to do AR, you've got to have a camera. Mm -hmm. But what if Apple didn't give developers access to the camera at all? Yeah. That there is no way to take a picture with this headset. That it only hands over topology information and wireframes. And it could... It could notice that someone, you know, to key off of another demo that they did, it could see that someone is shooting a basket, mm-hmm. but it couldn't give you video or a picture of the person yeah. taking the basket. So that's kind of what, what Oculus has done with the inside out tracking on the Quest. Developers can get access to the tracking data, but they can't get access to the video data. They okay. can't actually see it in the room. And even when you're doing a screen recording wearing the Quest, the way that the, the boundaries work with the Quest is that you basically put the headset on, draw a playable area where you want to spend time in VR. If you poke your head out of that, the cameras turn on and give you kind of a fuzzy image of mm-hmm. the outside world so you can see it when you're about to bump into something. But they've got it set up where if you are doing a screen recording and you bump your head outside of your play area, it just blacks that out. So they've, okay. they've taken some steps to make sure that's not you know, going anywhere. And they also said mm-hmm. that, you know, none of the video data ever gets recorded and the tracking data is only stored on the device. So I think even them, are, even Facebook is getting sick of privacy scandals. Um, with ARKit though, I, I think that would be a good way to go. But the way, like it would have to be a device specific thing because they built ARKit on iOS specifically around the notion of using the camera and making AR effects, doing things like that basketball app. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it would, 
the way that the API is set up now, you're using the camera APIs and the motion core motion stuff. And then they kind of built on top of those things to build the rest of AR kit. So they'd have to make a very device specific set of changes to the, the way the AR kit works. Although let's say that is a very, very Apple kind of thing to do. Yeah. Completely change the APIs for a specific device. Yeah. It just would seem counterproductive to have three years of developers testing out this great new framework and then change how it works. <laughs> like, what was the point of using this then? That then becomes a question of whether Apple was convinced of the utility of AR kit on phones in the first place. Yeah. If they never were and it was all preparatory for an AR headset, then yes, that makes no sense. Yeah. But if internally they were convinced of the value of AR on phones in and of itself, maybe there is a different thing. I don't know. I, I, I'm not even predicting. I've just been trying to figure out a way around that problem so that when people see somebody walking through a bar with an AR headset, with an Apple headset, they don't get beat into the ground. Mm-hmm. I mean, I already get mean looks for wearing AirPods. Hmm. From who? People who don't have AirPods. <laughs> <laughs>